Whew. Oh man, that's good stuff. You guys are not supposed to make the preacher cry before he gets up on Sunday morning. That is not fair. That is not helpful. That is difficult. Good morning. Welcome to Midland Free. My name is Jeremy. I am glad that you are here to worship with us today. If you came in, hopefully you're warmly greeted and perhaps even uh, saw that we have Bibles in back. If you saw those blue books on racks, those are for you to follow along with. We'll also have the scripture up on the screen in a little bit. But here's one thing I need to tell you about that is every Thursday or Friday, I preferably Thursday, but most often Friday, uh, send the slides to our communication director and, or, and she produces them for me. And inevitably, you know, I sleep between then and now. And so something in my head changes and it becomes more fresh and I look at things differently. And I come back on Sunday morning pretty early and start to tweak things a little bit. And sometimes they're little tweaks and sometimes they're significant tweaks. And this morning I walked into the slide room and just uh, said to the guys back there, a couple good guys, uh, both Randy and Ron, and I said, hey guys, um, they're significantly different today, so just pay attention and good luck. <laughs> and so I'm telling you this morning as I start my sermon, this is my advice for you, just pay attention and good luck. <laughs> I hope it works for you. <clears throat> the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria on June 28, 1914, began a conflict which eventually would inflame the entire world. More than 16 million people lost their lives in that conflict we now know as World War I. Immediately after the outbreak of the war, H.G. Wells, a British author and social commentator, wrote a series of pamphlets that he published in London newspapers, um, and subsequently this appeared as a book entitled, you'll see a picture of it now, The War That Will End All Wars. In Wells's mind, what needed to be accomplished was the complete and total defeat of the central powers, that is, the German and Austria-Hungary alliance for the coming end to all of conflict. As a result, this phrase became a catchphrase of World War I and somewhat embodied the American ideals that democracy and freedom is necessary to preserve peace. And so as I look at this, and as we do in the now we ask ourselves rightly the question, well, was Wells right? Was this the war that really did end all wars? Even during his time, that phrase met with a good deal of skepticism. For example, British politician David Lloyd George said this, this war, like the next war, is a war to end all wars. Field Marshal Earl Wavell said despondently at the end of the war at the Paris Peace Treaty, the Paris Peace Conference, that um, after the war to end all wars, they seem to have created the peace to end all peace. From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence even of your own lust that war within your members? 
filled with imagery of conflict and war. James chapter 4 takes us through an impassioned speech at which James asks a very penetrating question. And that is this, is what is it? I mean, what in the world is it in the heart of man that creates so much trouble? What is it? There are wars within us. There are wars amongst our family and friends. And there are wars in the broader context in the world at large. What causes quarrels and fights among you? James chapter 4. It says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell within us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, for the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to both save and destroy. And who are you to judge your neighbor? James chapter 4. The war within, the war without, the war to end all wars. This is the structure that we will follow today as we walk through this passage. I think what you'll see is basically the war within is the war that has to do with what's going on inside of us. That's stirring in our souls. The war within. And then as a result of examining that one in depth, we'll spend a lot of time there. We'll move into the war without. How does that war within ourselves spill over into our relationship with other people? What is on the inside bubbles up and comes to the outside. And then finally, we will look at the war to end all wars. Surely God did not mean for us to exist in this constant state of conflict and turmoil. James chapter 4 verse 1 says this, what, cause, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. Church, is there a war 
going on in your soul this morning? Do you feel some sort of struggle or conflict within you? What is it? What is it that you want that you do not have? As you think about it this morning, I think what I would like to do is draw your minds from that specific thing or incident or difficulty or struggle or relationship to the larger picture. In other words, what I want to say is, what is it that you're not getting? You yourself may not even know. What we know is this, is we feel the hole in our souls. We look for the missing piece, so to speak. And in our culture, I think that comes across in some pretty dramatic ways. In other cultures, they experience the lack uh, in, in dramatic ways of basic necessities. We who are rich do not feel that. And yet, when you look at our society, what you see is that even though we are materially rich in many ways, we still have a long list of significant battles. Those include things like depression, anxiety, separation, uncertainty, addiction, abuse, greed, loneliness, neglect, self-glorification, and instant gratification. All of these things we see warring within our souls. Now, Satan, of course, does his very best to answer that question for us and say, this is what fits. This will what take the place of that. This, will what, this is what will help you fill the problem in your soul. But the thing is, is what that lie does not fully realize is that you were not made in the image of depression despite the negative thoughts that Satan allows for you to fill your mind. You were not made in the image of fear despite anxiety's attempt to convince you otherwise. You were not made in the image of brokenness, despite the deep impact of divorce. You were not made in the image of addiction, despite Satan's attempts to enslave you. And you were not made in the image of money, despite greed's attempt to print it into your soul. You were not made in the image of sex despite porn's attempt to burn it into your mind. And you were not made especially in the image of self, no matter how many selfies you take. You were made in the image of God. And it is only from the cloth from which you were cut that can actually fill the hole that is in your soul. Everything else is rugged, dirty, muddy patches on worn-out jeans. And it simply doesn't work. Our lives are a puzzle waiting to be filled. And what we think we want, we actually don't really want. And when we ask for it, of course, we don't get it. And when we don't get it, then we get upset. All the while missing the very thing that we do want. And ironically enough, God would be more than pleased to give it, if only we'd asked. And you may say to me, as I say to me many a times, yeah, but I have real needs, <laughs> you know. I have to put gas in the car. 
I have to feed my children. I have to put a roof over their heads and eventually I have to replace that roof and then this breaks and that breaks and I mean, it doesn't stop. Our lives are filled with conflict and turmoil and scarcity and lack and struggle and pain and what do we do? Ultimately, I think what we do need to do is this. Here's a slide for you. It's perhaps a bit out of order. It says this. Ultimately, what we want to ask for, what we should ask for, is not simple solutions to our temporary problems, but instead the permanent fix to all of our problems. We tend when something happens, to focus on the thing itself, right? Like, my car broke, it needs fixed. Dear God, please help me to fix my car. You know? There's a financial need, dear Lord, please meet it. There's a physical pain, dear God, please help. And that is natural and totally acceptable to God. That's completely good to pray for that. But what happens, I think, is we get this myopic view where we focus in on this single incident and we really miss the bigger picture. Now, I'm guessing if you've been in church for a while, you're, gonna, you're probably going to the point where you think the preacher's going to say, okay, so if you're in a trial, pray for patience, and then you'll learn patience. Ha, 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 ha. You know? And that's not really my point. It really isn't. Because I think sometimes we see that as a quick out and we can say, okay, I'm in a trial. So I say, okay, God, I'm supposed to learn patience. I got it. I'm done, right? <laughs> okay, move this thing, you know. And that's still missing the point. What it is is this. If, uh, if you use email, if you don't follow along, you'll still get it. But if you use email, oftentimes there's a message that is sent to you. Now, if you're like me, you get a lot of emails and you're trying to move through those pretty quickly. And there's some that are much more weighty and others are general announcements and others have nothing to do with you. And you're clearing them off as fast as you can. Bang, 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 bang. Get rid of them. Check, check. Done, done. Okay, these are left. Let's go. What do we do? Well, sometimes when we're going through those emails, what we miss is like the bottom paragraph or the attachment. And we may delete it or file it or whatever, but as it turns out, that last little paragraph or that last, that attachment is the significant piece. Because along with this general information came out this very specific data that you actually need and, and it's mission critical to what you're trying to do. And yet you just rush over it. In a lot of ways, I think this is exactly what happens to us in our daily lives. God sends us situations, and we've got a lot of situations. We're juggling a lot of balls, and we're trying to get through them. And we're like, okay, this done, this done, this done has to be done by tomorrow, not by today, blah, 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 blah. And we're hustling through all those things. And some things are really big and significant and weighty. And in the meantime, we're focused in on that issue, and we miss the attachment. And the attachment is this. In every situation the Lord God is sending you, it's not just a situation for you to struggle or fight through, but ultimately it's something to bring him glory and grow you in your sanctification, to make you more like Christ. And so it's not just a matter of checking it off the list, like, okay, I learned patience. Now, Lord, you can remove this trial. This thing may stay with you the rest of your life, and it actually may be a blessing and not a curse. And that's a difficult thing for us as human beings to try to figure out. Because in general, that's not the way our mind works, and it's certainly not the way we pray. So let me give you a few practical examples then, and hopefully 
what I'm hoping through this is that you will learn to pray and pray differently as a result. And I think that if you do, if you can actually latch onto this, that it could radically and dynamically change your life. So let me give you an example. Say you're going fishing. What do you want to pray for? I catch a big one, right? I want to catch a fish. I like to catch a lot of fish. I'd like to have a good day today, Lord. And God's not mad at you when you pray that. Of course not. He wants you to have fun. You know, he's not against that. He's not a giant killjoy in the sky. So go fishing. Pray. Have fun. Enjoy. It's his creation. He gave it to you. Enjoy it. Fish. But what happens is this, is we're just praying for the big fish. And what happens when I'm casting, I'm like, snag. You know, stoked on the back of the tree. Or kaplunk. Oh, man, I lost my favorite lure. You know, that guy took my spot. What's he doing? He got there before me. Get out of the way, man. Come on. I was here first. And all of a sudden, my attitude changes. Why? Because I'm focused on the big fish. Right? I don't want to catch that. This is my one day off. I put aside everything else so I can go do this. I don't get to do it every day. Come on. Give me a break. And we're focused on that fish, right? But in reality, here's my challenge to you, is yes, go fishing. But when you do, and you pray, and I'm saying it's okay to pray for the big fish. Dear God, please help me to catch that big fish. Amen. Well, not amen. Not amen quite yet. Instead, what I want you to do is get the attachment. To that desire for the big fish... I want you to hook on. That just came. Wow. I want you to hook on. I have to write that down for the second service. All right. Hook. I'll draw a hook and then I won't know what it is. All right. I want you to hook on an additional prayer to that. So, yes, please pray. Dear God, please help me to catch that big fish. I'm not poo-pooing that. When you do, I want you to also say something like, Dear God, please help me to catch that big fish. And as I travel today, I'm not really sure what I'm going to encounter. So if it's rainy, help me to be happy in the refreshment of your joy. And if it's hot, help me to feel the warmth of your love. If it's cold, help me to remember how good it is to be at home. And when I get home, help me to be so refreshed from this outing that I will do the dishes and mow the lawn and take care of the kids and everything else with renewed vigor like I never had before. And I'm coming home like, praise Jesus, I went fishing. It's not about how much I caught, but instead how much I'm going to bless you as a result of the rest. And you pray differently because you're thinking about, now I want to catch the big fish, but I'm not going to get myopic on that. I'm going to see the big picture and I'm going to move from the big fish to God's big goal, which is his glory and his gospel. And I'm going to go from this to like, how does it impact me? And now how is it going to impact others? And as I fish today, perhaps I'll have a deeper, meaningful conversation with the guy who's sharing the boat. And as a result, we can talk about spiritual things going down the road in the truck in a way that he'd never feel comfortable approaching me any other way. And all of a sudden, the mission for this trip has changed. And you pray, dear Lord, sure, catch me, help me catch a big fish. I want to. That'll be fun. 
But I pray that you'll help me have that conversation. I pray that you'll help me to come back rested. I pray that you'll help me to feel more of you. I pray that as a result of this day, in addition to my desire to catch the fish, that you would catch me. That you would hook me and reel me in. Dear God, please help. Help me to catch the fish. Not the end. But attach to it the spiritual prayer. And see, you can do that to anything. Now, I just use a fishing one, so here I'm going to go outside my comfort zone. Shopping, you know. How many get the good deal, the right shoes, the right dress, the matching whatever? How many find it, Lord? Yes, but how many to interact with the teller in a proper way? How many come home happy and fulfilled? How many not to spend too much and be a good steward of what you give me? How many to be wise about how I approach this and not be frustrated or fight over parking spots or hurry or come away frazzled or whatever? But Lord, help me to see your provision in every single instance throughout this trip. So I see that parking lot and I'm like, thank you God for that space. And I see this teller and I say, here's another person that no one's greeted all day long. And I see things differently because I'm not just out now to get the good deal. I'm out to obey God and see what his deal is for me. There are these desires, there are these struggles, these wars that you have within you. I'll give you one more just so I can beat it into the ground. Uh, the other day, one of my children had a sore throat. And I was knowing that this sermon is coming up, and I'm thinking, okay, so how do I pray this? You know, how do I pray? And I'm like, okay, dear Lord, please help the throat to stop hurting. Yes. <clears throat> but please also help, as I know how it is for me. When I'm sick, I feel bad, and it's hard to be nice. So when I feel bad, help me to be nice. And with my throat, which was designed to sing praises to you and speak well to others, help me to do that. And Lord, even if my voice doesn't come back, help me not to transfer that pain or guilt onto somebody else. And all of a sudden, your prayers dramatically change. They go from fix my whatever or give me this or make me happy to thy will be done and thy kingdom come on earth just like it is in heaven. And that's what you're actually after. That is the war that's going on within you. All these desires and wants that you think you want that you really don't want. That you're trying to fill and you're trying to complete and you never get there. And so you're always getting mad and eventually that spills out on somebody else. When in reality, God has sent you this email and said, here's a situation in your life. But don't just see this. Catch the attachment. Because there is something hooked on to that situation that I want you to grab. And you grab that and you bring that in and you ask for me, you ask for that and you'll get it. God says he will give you those good things. So you ask for love, joy, peace, patience, perseverance, all those things. And God promises to give you them. You don't have them because you don't ask. And what you do ask for, you don't get because God knows you don't really want it. This is the war that is at work within ourselves. Now, as I said earlier, that war also spills out onto other people, too. Because even when we don't realize it, we hurt others with our unmet desires. Ken Sandy, in his most excellent work, The Peacemaker, says it like this. The root cause of conflict, says any conflict, international, global 
individual, interpersonal, marital, children, whatever, is unmet desire in your heart. When we want something and feel that we will not be satisfied unless we get it, that desire starts to control us. If others fail to meet our desires, then we sometimes condemn them in our hearts and fight harder to get our own way. What is he saying? Well, I think the same thing James is, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You desire and do not have, and so you murder. What? James, murder? I haven't murdered. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I pay my taxes. You know, I've never really broken any significant laws in my life other than a speeding ticket here or there. Yeah? What do you mean, murder? Do you remember who James is related to? I think we said that at the outset of the book. His half-brother was the guy whose words usually appear in red. His name is Jesus. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He said, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. Oh, good. We got that one covered. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Ah, good. I'm clear. But I say to you, oh, <laughs> there's more. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's what Jesus said. And that's what I'm guilty of. Have you ever said, you fool? Have you ever felt frustrated? Something they have that you want that you don't get, and you're mad. You murder. You covet. And because of these desires, we take it out on other people. We get angry and we fight and we quarrel. And that is no good. So what do we do? There is a war within and there is a war without. And it is strong and it is powerful indeed. This is where the war to end all wars comes in. It actually goes back a lot further than 1914. It goes back somewhere before time began. Now I say that, and I'm getting a bit philosophical here, because just so you know, obviously we measure time in a lot of different ways. Whether if you're an astronomer, a physicist, you can measure it in light years. If you're a normal person, you just say, okay, so today is this many revolutions around the sun or whatever. But at some point, we as Christians affirm that the universe did not exist, and yet God did. God is eternal, and therefore nothing else other than he is. He exists, always was, always is, and always will be. However, at some point in time, before the world began, he created angels. So I say time. It depends on what you mean by that. But angels and Satan and sin are not eternal. Only God is. So they are created beings. At some point, God created them. And what we know is this. At some point, the archangel, Lucifer, rebelled. And so this morning, I'm giving you a bit of demonology, if you will. A bit of, 
um, the, the study or theology or information regarding what God says of Satan and his angels. And the reason I want to do so is this, is because I think when we think about Satan, we think about him in very American terms, you know. We've assigned a red suit and horns and a polka tail and a nice pitchfork or perhaps something much more sinister. We watch, you know, poltergeist or whatever and we see flames flying out of his fingers and we see people flying up against the wall and possession and all these horrible things. They're like, whoa, <laughs> that's crazy. And then some people actually think it's fun and they mess around with Ouija boards and witchcraft and all this role play and other stuff and they kind of literally play with fire. But what the Bible presents is a very different picture than what Hollywood and media present regarding Satan. And it is this, initially he's just an angel and then he is a very powerful one and then he is one that rebels because he wanted to usurp the throne of God. So he is a mutineer, he's a traitor, he is a wretch, and he is a downfall. He lost then, and he loses now, and he is forever condemned. He will never win, and he knows this. Jesus, while he is on earth, says, hell is prepared for Satan and his angels. Satan knows he's going to hell. The thing is, he wants to take you with him. He's mad because he's losing. How do you feel when you're losing? He knows he's going to lose. He's in big trouble, and so he's totally hopping mad. And he wants to create all the havoc he can before he's finally condemned. And so he goes around the world, not with incredible superpowers, as we might imagine, like Sith shooting lightning from their fingers, but instead, primarily, his main power is that of deception. The Bible describes him as a schemer, Here's a, here's a slide for you, and by the way, you can download this if you want later to look up and learn more about the devil. Um, he is a schemer who sets trap for people. He is an opportunistic predator. He is slanderous. He is considered the enemy. He consistently and continuously sins, and he is the deceiver of the whole world. So his primary power, his primary way of getting at you is through lies and deception. Now we do see in some places in scripture where God grants to him more physical power. For example, when he afflicts Job. But that is power that he has to go to God for and request. And then God will grant it because there's an attachment in the email that was sent to Job. And that attachment is carried on to us through the uh, work that was completed in his life. So here is God completely in control of this demon or this satanic devil. Martin Luther calls him God's devil. Like he's got him on a leash and just yanks him or jerks him wherever he wants to go. The dumb mutt is trying to get away and Lord's just pulling him back saying, uh-uh, this way, this is what you do. And eventually I throw you in the pit because you're done. That's what happens. So it's true and it's right for us to have a healthy respect and not mess around with things on the uh, darker side. But at the same time, we shouldn't cower in fear thinking that this is some monster that is incredibly pow more powerful than us. In reality, what is true is that you have the Holy Spirit of God, the second, third person of the Trinity living inside of you who is way more powerful than any angelic host. And so rather than cowering in fear, we are told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not from you, yourself, but from the Holy Spirit of God who's living inside of you. Then he's afraid. And the only way he really has to, to trick you or dupe you or trap you is through deception. 
So you fill your mind with truth, you pursue God's word, you get it in you and flowing through you, and all of a sudden you can't be deterred by the traps of the devil. And you're good. So it's this incredibly ironic thing where the way in which we win this war, the way in which we conquer this conflict, the way in which we rise to be victorious above it all, is through surrender. We win through our unconditional surrender to God. That is why James makes it very clear that there is only one. There is only one lawgiver. There is only one judge. It is not you. It is not me. It is not even Satan himself. We think we can judge. We can rise up over the laws and decide which ones apply to us and which ones don't. Satan thinks he can do the same thing. He says, hey, did God really say that? No, 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 don't worry. I'll tell you what he really said. There is only one judge and there is only one lawgiver and he will not share his glory with another. No way. And so God is not interested in your half-hearted, acquiescent, incomplete surrender. Instead, he wants unquestionable, uncontested, complete and total sovereign rule in your life. It is not enough to try to write some treaty and say, I'll give you this if you give me that and I'll hold this back and you can. No, God says, I'm it. I win. There's no democracy. There's no vote. There's no tally. There's no policy. There's no subcommittee. Nothing. It's just me. I'm the boss 100% yes or no. That's it. And so our only hope then is to submit or draw near. Or we can be like Satan and rebel and see how that goes for him. 100% total and complete submission. Submit yourselves therefore to God and as a result then you will be able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Weep, mourn, repent, Submit, humble yourselves before the Lord, and then he will lift you up. This is the way it goes with the war within, the war without, and the war to end all wars. You have these desires, they're at war within you, you want, you don't have, and what you need to do at the end of the day is say, God, I submit. This is what I want, not my will, but yours. Lord, I want, I want this fish, I want this roof, I want this house, I want this car, I want this job, I want this relationship, whatever, 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 whatever. At the end of the day, I submit to your complete and total, unquestioned, sovereign rule over all things. And when you send situations in my life, help me not to get a myopic view that just says, this is it and I need a fix, but instead, help me to look up and see the big picture of your gospel and your glory forever and ever. That's the way that God wants us to win. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. I don't have all of this up on the text, but I think it's kind of neat because it actually does deal with Satan and deal with us all in one fatal swoop. This is the end. In fact, this is the war that will end all wars. This is the one H.G. Wells and the rest of us are looking for. This is the final piece and the ultimate victory. 
This is how John says it goes down. Revelation chapter 20. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that is the ancient serpent who has been warring against us, the devil, Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. That's what we call the millennium. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer. That's what he does. Until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he's released for one last hurrah. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth called Gog and Magog. He gathers them for battle. This is the last battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. <clears throat> there is only one judge, right? Who is it at this point? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Listen to this. This is so beautiful. From his presence, earth and sky fled. What is it for earth and sky to flee? Do they flee from me? Do they flee from you? I don't think so. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. Everybody's there. The books are open. There's another book which opens called the Book of Life. You've probably heard it. Evangelists refer to that. Dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. And each one of them according to what he's done. Then, finally, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Book of Life, he too was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw, after the final judgment by the judge, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Saw the holy city. New Jerusalem. Coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. Heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he will be their God. He wipes every tear from their eyes and death and pain and struggle and war and all that other bad stuff will be no more. No crying forever. And he who is seated on the judgment throne, the seat of Christ said, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is the war to end all wars. And you fight and you struggle right now and yeah, it's a mess and there's things we got to deal with every day. There's no doubt. But don't, don't miss the bigger picture. Don't miss the attachment. See what's coming with it. Don't just pray for that thing that's in your life. I know it's huge when you hurt, you hurt and you can't get up and you can't get over it. That's part of it. 
But while you're laying there flat on your back in pain, be sure to be praying to God. Even, even if you can't get it all out, just say whatever you can. Say, God, I trust you. God, I submit. Lord, you are the judge. Do your will and do it right and get it done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. There's all kinds of conflict at work in us. Evil desires of our own, the imposition of others, the results of living in a fallen world, being simple and sick and pain and limited and everything. But Lord, you are omniscient and you are good and you are powerful and you are judge and you win. And so Lord, help me not to even care what happens, but just to trust and believe in you and your ultimate victory that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.